Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there, uh, Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. And uh, in this passage, Paul describes for the Ephesians uh, what kind of servant he was and also what message he had uh, to deliver. Um, so I'd just like us to think about both these um, details tonight. Uh, I don't know if we noticed, but um, verse 1 and verse um, 13, which bracket this passage, um, both refer to Paul as suffering. So um, I suppose they were, um, people were curious why he was suffering. Um, surely if you are serving uh, the Almighty God, and surely if Christ has all power in heaven and on earth, why would anybody expect his servants to suffer? And that would raise the question, are they suffering for their own fault? Um, I suspect some people were saying that about Paul because, humanly speaking, <clears throat> uh, the reason why he was imprisoned in Rome was because he himself had appealed to Caesar. And we know from the book of Acts that on one of the occasions when he was being tried, I think by, I forget which one it was, King Agrippa or somebody, who said about Paul that he would have been set at liberty if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So he was um, perhaps facing this kind of accusation. You're suffering because of your own choice. And of course that would be a very difficult thing for him uh, to cope with. So the, anyway here he deals with the fact that he is suffering. Um, he was a prisoner in Rome and uh, we're not to imagine that he was in a kind of modern prison. Um, our modern prisons didn't exist in the ancient world. And initially, at least in the book of Acts, his imprisonment was under house arrest. Um, but um, at some stage, he had been imprisoned in another way. And so what benefit comes from that? And he points out <clears throat> that this uh, suffering is actually on behalf of the Gentiles, which is a rather strange way of looking at it, at least initially, because we might say that his sufferings had actually stopped him helping the Gentiles. Uh, what good could he do in, while imprisoned? 
And yet, if we read other letters that Paul wrote around about the same time as this one to Ephesians, for example, the letter he wrote to the Philippians, he tells us that despite being imprisoned, uh, he had managed to get the gospel to the heart of the entire uh, guard. The special guards that were assigned to look after prisoners of the emperor, the Praetorian Guard. And because Paul had appealed to Caesar, he was the emperor's prisoner. And apparently, uh, this Praetorian Guard numbered several thousand. And Paul says he had managed to get the gospel to all of them. How he did that, we don't know. Perhaps these soldiers took turn about guarding him and just had to stand there guarding him while he, as it were, witnessed to them. In that kind of scenario, you'd have to ask who was the captive? Was it Paul or the soldier assigned to guard him? But anyway, Paul's, Paul's quite adamant about that, writing to the Philippians, that he had, despite his suffering, managed to get to all these guards. And I suppose he's the only one in history who's ever done that. And that's quite extraordinary. At the same time, in that same letter to the Philippians, where he's talking about his imprisonment, he actually says, it's led to others in Rome wanting to spread the gospel. And rather unusually, he says that this spreading of the gospel uh, was being done both by those who supported him and those who did not. The response of his friends was to spread the gospel and the response of his opponents was to, spread, was to spread the gospel. So he says himself, where they're, they're for me or against me, the good result is the gospel is spreading. So Paul's point out there that uh, his sufferings were not really a barrier to the gospel. We'll probably come back uh, to that later on. Of course, although he describes himself as a um, preacher to the Gentiles, that doesn't mean he ignored the Jews. The book of Acts tells us repeatedly that every time he went somewhere, provided there was a synagogue in the location, he went first to the synagogue. Uh, the only one, I think, where that didn't happen was in Philippi, because there was no synagogue in Philippi. And the few Jews who were there, mainly women, they had to meet at the riverside, because that was a common practice, that there wasn't a synagogue. There had to be 10 male Jews in order for there to be a synagogue. So clearly there wasn't that many in Philippi, which is not too surprising, because Philippi was a special city, a Roman colony. And there were a few female Jews there, and also at least one female proselyte called Lydia, 
And Paul went down to the riverside and met them there because he knew that's, that's what they did for they couldn't have a synagogue. They would meet by a riverside. But anyway, Paul also preached to the Jews first whenever he went somewhere. But if they didn't listen, he turned to the Gentiles because in a real sense he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And his ambition was very great. He told the <clears throat> Romans when he wrote a letter to them saying that he hoped to visit them. And getting to Rome would be the climactic experience for most people. Rome was the place to be. But as far as Paul was concerned, it was only a stepping stone. Because he said to them, I will come and visit you on my way to Spain. And in the first century, Spain was the end of the world. What lay beyond Spain as far as people knew? People at that time didn't know that across the Atlantic there was a huge continent. They just thought that Spain was the edge of the world. And it does give us a real insight into Paul's outlook that he wanted to take the gospel to the edge of the world. He wanted to go as far as he could uh, with this message for the Gentiles. And of course, that's a challenge to us, isn't it? This one man was prepared almost to take on the world. And that is a challenge, isn't it? He was prepared to tell as many Gentiles as he could that the Savior had come. But anyway, here, maybe he's been told by some visitors who had come to him that, because he did get visitors from places near Ephesus, we're told that, and maybe they had told him, there's people in the area around Ephesus and they're really puzzled as to why you are in prison. So maybe he was led to give this prolonged explanation. And it's part of God's word. And in this passage, as I mentioned, he says something about his, wrote his servanthood, how he served. And it also says something about his message. So I'd like to think about these two things. What was Paul's ministry like? Well, he says three things about it. The first one is how he describes himself in verse 1. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, that's a very important thing to note. He says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So that means that he assessed things that somehow or other, him being in prison was an opportunity to do something for Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner for Christ. He happened to be where Jesus had planned him to be. I mean, Jesus wouldn't have put him somewhere where Jesus didn't want him to serve him. 
So therefore, behind the scenes in his providence, uh, Jesus had arranged all this. And of course, that's what was said to Paul at the time he was converted. When he was taken to the house in Damascus after he had met Jesus on the Damascus road, Jesus sent Ananias to see Paul and what he was told to pass on to Paul was how many things he would suffer for Christ's sake and how he would appear before kings and others in authority to, because of the faith. I mean, Jesus had told him beforehand, this is what's going to happen to you. And here he is. Jesus had kept his word in that sense. And here was Paul having been before the highest king of all, as far as earth was concerned, the Roman emperor. And of course, the Roman emperor that he appeared before was not the most pleasant of them because the emperor that he had appeared before was Nero. And later on, Paul would get out of this imprisonment. A few years later, he was arrested again. And on the second time he was arrested, he again appeared before Nero. And on this second time, he was sentenced to death. So here's a man, despite his circumstances, he's saying to himself, and he's saying to his readers, I am here for Jesus Christ. And that gives a totally different perspective on one's position, doesn't it? And I suppose I have to ask myself, whatever I am, and you have to ask it too, are we there for Jesus Christ? I mean, that is, that is the Ultimately, that is the only question. Are we where we are for Jesus Christ? So that's the first thing about Paul's servanthood. He was there to be used by Jesus in any way that Jesus wanted. You see, the second thing he says about his kind of service is that he was a steward. And he says that down in, in um, verse, um, verse 9. He was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, the word that's translated minister there um, means a household servant. There's different words translated minister throughout the New Testament. But this one here means household servant. But it also means a household servant in charge of other servants. So it's quite a, it is quite extraordinary that somebody who is in prison regards himself as a steward. Listen to it. That he is the arranger of how other people should serve. That Christ has given him this role, wherever he is, even in his imprisonment in Rome, his role as a household servant 
is to arrange how others should serve Christ. And I suppose uh, we could say that one way he did this was by sending these letters. Because he's sending out information to people as how they should serve Christ. I mean, that's him functioning as a, as a steward in Christ's house. A steward would need somewhere to serve. He'd have to have authority to serve, the, to serve there. And he would have, need to have people there who would do what he said. I mean, that's what a steward does. And that's what Paul did here. And he, kind as it were, arranged where others who served in the same household as him, where they would function. And of course, you can see how that fits in with his role as an apostle. He had authority to tell people uh, what role they had and so on, and how they should do it. So we can see that although he's actually in prison, he's got a very important role. He's, he hasn't stepped down from being a steward for the period that he's in prison. While he's in the prison, he still is a steward of, of Christ's activities. And uh, along with that, he says that his particular role uh, was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now sometimes if, if we see a sign that says unsearchable, we would take that to mean don't search. But that's not what Paul means here when he says they are unsearchable. He just says that nobody can, what he means is that nobody can get to the end of searching just imagine starting with Google on Monday and just searching for something and you keep at it all day Monday and all day Tuesday. And if you could ask at the end of the week to Google, is there anything else I can search for? And of course, Google will say if they wanted to, of course there is. All you've done is search for a few things in English. There's a lot more that you could um, search for if you wanted to. And you could, I suppose, I had no idea how long somebody could keep on doing that for with Google. But somewhere, maybe after a few centuries, you would come to the end of it. But you never do that with Jesus. He, he is unsearchable. There's no limit to his grace. There's no limit to the blessings that he has in store. They're there. They're infinite. And Paul is confident of that. And of course, that tells him, doesn't it, that it means that he's never going to meet a Gentile whose, whose need Christ cannot meet. I mean, that's what he means, doesn't it? He's never going to meet a Gentile anywhere whose riches, out of whose riches Christ cannot meet that person's need. And of course that was true back then for Paul. 
and it's also true for us. We might meet someone and we might say to them, well, they look quite far gone. But however far they've gone, they haven't gone anywhere where Christ can't meet their needs. And what they need to hear is about Jesus. And it's not Paul's responsibility to discover what the need is and then go and ask Jesus for it. Paul's responsibility is to tell the person to go to Jesus with his need and then Christ will supply it. And that's still for us as well, isn't it? doesn't matter who we meet. There's something in the unsearchable riches of Jesus that will meet that person's need. So we have to have that same confidence as Paul had. So he's a prisoner and he's a steward. He also tells us that he is set apart to the gospel, to preach the gospel. He is a saint. God had um, given him this role uh, to function in this way. And he, um, he says about himself that um, he was the very least of all the saints there in verse 8. It's quite intriguing that in the phrase, the very least of all the saints, the term very least is the word Paulus, Paul's own name. It means little. And it could be that Paul is plain on his name. I am the very least of all the saints. But he's just saying that despite his prominent position and despite the great experiences he's had, he regards himself not merely as small, which in some ways is quite easy to do. If everybody else has regarded themselves as small, it's quite easy to regard yourself as small. But Paul didn't regard himself as small. He regarded himself as the smallest. And there's a world of difference there, isn't there? He said he was the least of all the saints. I mean, he hasn't met all the saints. And he's not just talking about the ones he met. He says that he himself, that's his estimation. It doesn't matter, he says, of who I'm going to meet. I'm less than them all. And that's a very challenging self-perception to have. And remember, he's just described himself as a steward. He's the man who points out where others should go. But at the same time, he regards himself as the smallest. I don't know if you find that challenging, but I would say if we don't find it challenging, we should. He is the smallest, less than the least of all the saints.
He just sensed that he was unworthy. So that's his service. And that's a way to have success. To be whatever you are for Jesus Christ. To be whatever you are, the role that he planned. And to be whatever you are, the smallest in the room. And that's challenging. But then there's also his message. It's a mystery. He had received it by revelation. Paul had a great mind. And if there was, anybody, if there was anyone anywhere who, who could take giant leaps forward in knowledge, it was Saul of Tarsus. But there's not one word in his writings that came out of his own head. All of it was given to him by revelation. All the amazing insight he has into Jesus. And all the things he can say about the potential for the Christian life and all the words he uses to describe the glory to come. He made none of it up. It was all revealed to him at some stage after his conversion. And he refers to that several times. It wasn't just given to him, it was also given to others, whom he calls the apostles and prophets. But they were all given the same message. And uh, this message was for the Gentiles. And remember, these Gentiles were in pagan darkness. And there they were at the bottom, as it were, of the, the ladder. But what would happen to them when they believed in Jesus, when this mystery was revealed to them? This mystery that wasn't explained to the Old Testament people, the way it had been explained after Jesus returned to heaven. And Paul says there would be three consequences of that. And since we are Gentiles, we should listen. One of them is, and we thought about it last time, we're fellow heirs. You know? Take Abraham, the father of the faithful. He's not a greater heir than we are. We're fellow heirs of the kingdom. He's got the kingdom because he's a joint heir. We've got the kingdom because we're joint heirs. We've gone from poverty to riches that can't be even described. The inheritance is ours, the new heavens and new earth. And of course, the inheritance is going to be given to all the heirs at the same time. So even in a certain sense, those up in heaven haven't got the inheritance already yet. They're waiting for it, even as we're waiting for it. When Jesus returns and he'll create the new heavens and the new earth. Fellow heirs. What a message to bring to, to Gentiles who had no hope. 
But I also brought in this message, the gospel, that if they repented of their sins, they would both belong to the same body. As he points out there, that they would be fellow heirs, members of the same body, as he says there in verse 6. And that means that they and us are equally connected to the head. It's a wonderful picture of the body. And Paul uses it repeatedly to describe the way Christians are connected to Jesus. His power in a normal uh, body, our hands are powered by the head. Doesn't matter if it's your little finger or your big finger, they're powered by the head. And that's reality in the spiritual world. We're attached to Jesus. And his power, in ways that we don't fully appreciate, is seen through his people. And it's seen as they communicate the gospel. Because that is the power of God. And that's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? How much power do we have? In ourselves, none. But because we're united to Jesus, his power. That's what Jesus said to Paul. My strength is made complete in your weakness. It doesn't really matter how weak you are. My strength is made complete in your weakness. Which, of course, means that nobody can say, it's not possible for me to do that. Because what you're saying, or what I'm saying when I say that is, it's not possible for Jesus to do that. And that's quite wrong. Jesus works through his body. And the third thing is, they both have what's called here the promise. Partakers of the promise. He doesn't say partakers of the promises. We're partakers of the promise. And it looks to me that in verse 6 there's a reference to the Trinity because um, we're heirs of the Father and we are of the same body as Christ. And I suppose by deduction, the promise might refer to the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's called in this letter, isn't it? The promised Holy Spirit. So we are given the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful possession. Anywhere we go, whether we're Jewish or Gentile believers, the Spirit is there. And Paul just says that's his message. If you believe in Jesus, you become a fellow heir, part of the same body, and you have the promise of the Spirit. 
And that message turned the world upside down. And as we close, Paul just mentions some comments to highlight the bigness of what's happening. I'll just mention them briefly. How do we know the gospel's big? Well, reason number one is the work of the Creator. What big things did the Creator do? He made the universe. What's the other big thing he's done? He's created the church. One is the old creation, the other is the new creation. That's the magnitude of the gospel. It's huge. Indeed, the Bible would tell us that a new creation is far bigger than the old. The old is going to pass away. The new creation is eternal. A second reason that shows the bigness of the gospel is angels learn about God from it. Now into the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. We don't know there if the reference is to good angels or bad angels. Or perhaps it's to both kinds of angels. But all of them, I mean, they knew a lot about God, didn't they, at the beginning? The sons of God shouted for joy as they saw his great power bringing the universe into existence. But nobody on day one, or days two, three, four, five, and six, nobody on that creation week saw anything about the mercy of God. But as they look at the church, what they see is mercy. And whether there's good or bad angels, neither of them experience mercy. But in the church, everyone experiences mercy. And they learn about the merciful God. That's the second reason. God created it. Angels look at it. The third reason is Jesus arranges it. And that comes out in that phrase there in verse um, 12, sorry, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus today is realizing something. Not in a sense he's learning anything, but he is bringing to pass under his control God's eternal purpose. He's just doing it. Everything he's done today has been in line with that. And, I mean, the Savior's activities today are cosmic. And it's all been realized. This message that Paul has about the church is part of God's eternal purpose. And Jesus, our 
Savior, our prophet, our priest and king, he is doing that. And it's all been realized. He's never once failed. And that makes it a big message. And the last one is, and we mentioned this last time, where does it bring us as poor Gentiles? Well, Paul tells us where it brings us there in verse 12. We have boldness and access. We're in the very presence of God. So as we noticed last time, this word access doesn't mean we go in and out of God's presence. It means we've been given entrance. We've shifted locations. Once we were outside, now we're inside. And once you're inside, you're inside forever. Never again, far away from God. That was Paul's message. A big message. There's never been a message as big as it. And there he was in Rome and a, a prisoner, contributing to the growth of the kingdom. And I suppose he would say to us, wherever you are, you can do the same. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for what your word tells us about the message that Paul preached. We thank you too for his example of humility. That although from our perspective, he might seem to be the best Christian that ever lived, in his own perspective, he was the smallest one who ever lived. But we thank you that his sense of smallness didn't cause him to think he had a small message. But he was led to use his, his God-given abilities to describe the bigness of the message he had been given. Lord, help us to learn from him and to realize the wonder of your salvation. So bless us, Lord, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen.